This is Lucky Episode number 13 of the Bearded Marketers Podcast, the only internet marketing podcast that you need to be listening to. Uh, just an FYI, coming up soon, I don't know when soon, it could be a month, it could be two. We like to keep you guessing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, we do have a website relaunch coming. We've got a lot of new content coming, not just going to be a podcast anymore. It looks good. Benchmark reports, studies. Um, I think we're going to be doing some other interesting content mm-hmm. um, involving working directly with you, the audience. Right. So. Um, follow us on Twitter, keep up with us on Facebook, anything, uh, so you can be informed of when that new stuff is hitting Mm -hmm. the streets. Right. And if you're new with us, I'm Corey, this is Rob. We are the Bearded Marketers. Welcome to this week's episode. We'd also like to special shout out NSA. If you're listening, welcome as, as well. Prism, you're more than welcome to listen to us. I don't (laughs) think you ask our permissions anyway, but welcome to the podcast. So let's go ahead and dive in but before we do yeah it is a tradition if you are new with us that we talk about what brews we are drinking in tonight's episode to kind of keep us loose keep it funny yeah um but to keep it uh insightful as well so tonight i'm rocking a rob roy which is a little interesting the vermouth is an interesting touch what are you drinking rob (laughs) i'm keeping with the theme of tonight we just had a really serious thunderstorm roll through Mm. so i'm going with a dark and stormy Ooh. How appropriate. Uh, it does look good. Mine? No. I'm going to struggle through it. I'm, I'm going to be honest here. So, as we're talking tonight, feel free to give us a call, 904-270-9603. Tell us what you're struggling with, what you'd like us to cover in our next episode. Uh, between Rob and I, we got a lot of experience in a lot of different verticals and also know quite a bit of people in the space. Um, so, you can help us kind of steer the content for the next episode. Without further ado, let's go ahead and get into it. So for tonight, we're going to be talking, we're going to be continuing our six-part series in marketing principles of ye old times and how they're still applicable today. So tonight, we're going to be talking about social proof. Uh, We're going to be next talking about abandonment rate on online videos and some articles that kind of gained some traction that came out this week. And then we also got um, a few studies. We'll look at some numbers on what uh, people look for in B2B content, um, what factors do they use to look at things that they trust and value. Uh, We're going to follow that up with um, differences that we can see in international and U.S. versus U.S. traffic and how those visitors interact with your website differently. What helps um, get conversions for those two different demographics? Ah, Good good topic. I think that's something that we... uh... We kind of neglect here, especially yeah. in the, most studies that I see, you, you know, there's always a very strong concentration to U.S., but uh, for a lot of us, especially in the e-commerce side of things, you know, our, we operate without borders or for whatever borders we want to ship to. So uh, I think that'll be an interesting one for us to discuss. So to kick things off tonight, uh, like I said, we have had a six-part series. This is going to be number three, uh, where we're going to be focusing on some old marketing principles. Um and really the psychology of persuasion um, in a book that was put out by Dr. Robert Cialdini. And tonight's topic that we're going to be talking about is the social proof aspect. Um, And so really how social proof boils down is really looking at um, how people observe what other people are doing and what, how that influences their decisions. Kind of, you know, the idea around there is um, safety or there's going to be a drive in numbers. You know, almost kind of the um, drive for us not to be left out um, and to be different. You know, some of us 
try to strive to be different or go against the flow, but oftentimes that's also to fit into another group, right? Uh, which is funny. But you know that there's there social proof even in the outliers or the renegades, mm-hmm. so to say, um, and that we we look for. I think just as humans in general, we look to minimize, mitigate risk in our life. And I think the social proof aspect is kind of just more delving into that kind of um, that idea. So kind of talk about some examples here. You know, for instance, if our coworkers are working late, then we're likelier to do the same. You know, the, the instance that we don't want to kind of appear to be slacking off or not working as hard. Um, and just in our daily lives, how some of those social cues can change our behavior, um, even if it's sometimes not merited. So, you know, in that example, maybe I just stay at my cubicle and I'm just surfing, you know, random websites. And I'm not really getting any work done, but I don't want to look like the oddball out. Um, so as marketers, you know, how do we kind of leverage this kind of principle to make it an actionable. And I think that we're going to kind of branch off a little bit from social proof or social pressure, I guess would be another way to say that, or social kind of reinforcement. You know, I think a, a perfect example that we use a lot is like reviews. So we provide those, whether that is testimonials for maybe B2B or selling a service type industry Um, or even things like events, or we're trying to get people to come somewhere. Maybe it's not even transactional. Like maybe it's a church or a concert website. You know, we look for these social proof elements like testimonials or my life was impacted. This is the best concert venue ever, um, to kind of allow people to make the choice, but give them the kind of social reinforcement that others have made the choice and it's worked out successfully for them. Um, I think also sometimes we use that to kind of put some pressure on people. Like you don't want to be left out. All your friends or all the celebrities are wearing X or doing said thing. And you don't want to be kind of the odd man out. Um, And we can do that a number of ways, whether that's with a copy or I think, especially with social proof, what often gets left out is the power of images. So we, when we look at this space, you know, we have our social networks and we have reviews, testimonials and things like that. Um, but I think what often gets lost with marketers and just websites in general is how much pressure we can put on people uh, or convey a social idea through images and connecting well with them. I think that that takes a lot of work on our effort to understand what our demographic is and how we can best apply these pressures through images to where they connect. Um, but I feel like that's something that's not really delved into yeah. um, that much. I, I think you had an interesting point there earlier when you were talking about um, sort of the two different angles that you can take with social proof. And, and one being, um, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use it to try to help a sale go through in terms of I'm going to use good reviews on the site and good testimonials. And maybe I'm going to have all the social media buttons that say, look at how many people like right. us. You know, we're a good company. We have a good product. You should buy from us. Mm-hmm. So the other side of the coin is inflict or like, you know, putting that pressure on people to, to make them want to sort of fit in. Right. So I don't, there's sort of different messaging you could use, Mm -hmm. um, when you sort of use the social media buttons as look at what everyone else is doing, you should be doing the same thing. Right. 
um, you know, look at what these famous people are saying. Mm-hmm. You should want to do what they're doing. Yeah, I mean, even to a personalized example, I know with the the Facebook API, you can pull in a widget as long as someone's signed in to pull in relevant friend contacts that also like that brand to kind of put that social pressure in a more personal way to them. Like your friends yeah. in your contact group find this valuable. Yeah, I was actually looking at that earlier today. And, and again, though, I think with the messaging, though, you could use that in two different ways. You sure. could use it as sort of like, um, you know, a friend that you like or who I'm assuming you trust their opinion of is using our product. You should Fingers trust crossed. us. <laughs> or the other way around in terms of like a person you sort of idolize, you want mm-hmm. to be like them. Right. Um, they have, they like our products, so sure. you should like us too. Right. Um, it's sort of an interesting dichotomy there. Um, I think I think you sort of really nailed it there in terms of social proof. I think the main ways that we use those things are reviews. Um, when I go to Amazon, my main way to look something up is, is sort by reviews, look at the top reviews, um, right. get a real good feel of what everyone else is doing and saying. Mm-hmm. And when you go to a website and you see, oh, you know, a hundred million likes, mm-hmm. you know, on their homepage, immediately social proof is, is there. It's, right. it's, I don't have to read so much in terms of the copy to try to figure out, is this a legitimate company or not? Right. That legitimacy is immediately, through, through yeah, that social means. proof mm-hmm. with just that little icon, you know, right. from Facebook, mm-hmm. which can be totally made up, but you sure. know, like it's, it's <laughs> there. A flat image. Yeah. And it immediately gets that social proof across. Right. I think a, a brand that, and this kind of branches off from social proof a bit, but an interesting way that a brand uses social elements, in my opinion, is Rent the Runway. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that brand. Um, no. So if you're ever interested in a very cute dress, Rent the Runway is your one-stop uh. shop. And one thing that they do very interesting that I think, one, works for that demographic really well, which is ladies. Um, maybe even couture ladies, if we were getting very specific. That's a fancy word. Well, I had my Rob Roy tonight. <laughs> so uh, anyways, specifically on their site, if anyone would like to peruse around, one thing that I think they use social really well for is, so the the goal of the site is to, instead of buying big designer dresses that cost a lot of money, you can actually rent them for an event. Um, what... What's the interesting part about their brand is when you go and shop their merchandise, they have a thriving community of customers that actually upload themselves in the dresses. And I think that that social element accomplishes so much for that brand. I mean, number one, it gives potential customers a better idea of the dress. So, yes, that might distract some people from purchasing because it's not exactly what the picture holds when they see it on someone else. But I think that that probably causes more satisfied customers because they get a better idea of what I'm actually getting into. Two, I think it causes some very loyal customers because we all like to be famous, let's face it, and we like some fame. And to be able to tell your friends that you're on Rent the One Runway or that you got some recognition from a brand that you like and that you've purchased means a lot to people. Um, And I I think that there's just a lot that they're doing with social proof, but also kind of like reinforcement and almost kind of building this very close-knit community into their shopping experience that I think some people could really take some notes from. It's like the perfect demographic for that, too. Right. Um, I can't think of a more perfect brand to use that sort of social proof on. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, I I think you could obviously take that across to sort of makeup brands. Sure. Anything in the beauty industry. It's like the perfect demographic to get people who want to upload that stuff. And I'm sure that there are ways that you could 
give people like accounts on these sites sure. and give them flair and mm-hmm. points or whatever made up right. stuff that makes right. them thing. Like you were I'm saying, a top like contributor I'm important, whatever. you right. know, now I even contribute even more and sure. I, I always upload pictures of the things I buy and I buy more things from there right. because I want that internet fame yeah. of, of having a million I'm whatever on a points. Website. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Um, yeah. I, I mean, uh, even using a, a different kind of vertical. So one of the brands that I work with specializes in sports merchandise. And I think that that's also a good demographic. I mean, to show passionate fans wearing gear, I think takes it beyond just, I'm purchasing from this flat Jersey image, but I see myself uh, being excited the passion of the sports team that I'm actually buying for, or even a gift. Um, I think that sometimes those social, social elements where it can connect, where it doesn't just look like a model, but it's someone that's excited. Um, and it's a real person that we can see ourselves in. I think that that can make a big difference in a lot of more verticals than just what I'm shopping for that perfect dress. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so anyways, I think again, kind of re, Looking back at some old marketing principles, the social proof aspect, Cialdini, check out his book, uh, Influences in the Psychology of Persuasion. Some really good principles that we're going to continue to um, go through in the next couple of weeks. So moving on, you had a good article about um, video abandonment that got a lot of traction, especially on Reddit. I saw that uh, pop up quite a bit. Yes, that's where I get all my topics, Reddit. It's where I spend all my time. Um, You know... It seems like videos have exploded on not just landing pages, but websites everywhere. Mm -hmm. Uh, Again, sort of pointing to your social proof. I mean, people upload video testimonials of things all the time. It's become a huge thing now that you see uh, in sales processes, whether it's B2B or even B2C. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I wanted to do a little bit of research on, you know, what kind of technology do you need to have powered to deliver your video? Is YouTube Mm -hmm. good enough? What's load time? Is that important? How long do videos need to be? Things like that. Mm And I found some interesting stats, and I think there was some controversy online. I don't, you know, I think people were maybe misinterpreting some of these stats, but let's just... <gasps> Color me shocked. shocked. <laughs> so let's get down. So um, I think, you know, honestly, I can't remember who did this research. I think it was some university did some research on videos, uh, video plays on websites. And they found that after five seconds of a video not loading, 25% people leave. Okay. After 10 seconds, 50% of people Those are some patient people. have left. 10 seconds is and a long then, time. Actually, I don't have stats beyond that. But the drop-off actually doesn't start to happen. and You don't notice a significant uh, bounce sort of rate mm-hmm. until you get to the two-second mark. Right. So I think that these stats were interesting. And there was a lot of debate online in terms of people were saying, yeah, absolutely, after two seconds, I leave. And that sort of got me thinking like, okay, so I went to YouTube and, and pressed play on a video. It takes two seconds for every video to load. Right. I mean, two you seconds is like... patience might be a little bit different because they're on YouTube, if that I, makes sense? Well, I think it's maybe their perceived patience is very short. Sure. But when they actually are acting... So I think maybe people can't count, essentially. <laughs> it's... Yeah, people can't count to right. two. That's number right. one. It would be interesting to see how they're... <laughs> capturing that count of time does that mean when the dom like starts or does that mean like when the page is like fully rendered video widget they hit play and they're waiting two seconds right my impression was you hit play you wait one mississippi two mississippi if it hasn't you know sort of loaded by now i'm leaving uh which to me that's that's really quick right um, I definitely give just about every video at least five seconds sure. before I go, what's going on here, and reload mm-hmm. the page. I don't even right. leave. Yeah. 
Um, so there was a, some interesting info. I don't know who these people are who wait 10 seconds. Well, half I, people wait for 10 seconds. I will for a say, video though, I'm playing. lucky enough in my life to most places, including my phone, uh, because I have usually very reliable 4G coverage. You know, pretty much every aspect of my life, I have very quick Internet connection. And, you know, when we look at people that are beyond the metro areas, you know, potentially their standard Internet experience is a bit different than than us that might be in the big old city. And, you know, what they're willing to wait around for is different because that's what they're accustomed to. I think also one thing that you that is missing from this data that would be good to know is really what were the people waiting on? What was the video content? You know, I think that my patience is different depending on what I'm expecting, my excitement, and how I'm browsing this content. Right. I, I think you're absolutely right. And, and they sort of point to it in, in not very specific terms, but at least in terms of if the video's long, people are willing to wait a little bit longer for it to load, mm-hmm. which sort of makes sense. Sure. Um, but anyway, so here's here are some of the actual, here's how the study was conducted. So okay. um, Akamai mm-hmm. provided a lot of anonymous data sure. to these researchers, mm-hmm. uh, which included 6.7 million viewers who watched 23 million videos okay. play. So I'm assuming that this is probably even includes like YouTube, YouTube data, like right. Hulu, Netflix, probably, like you know, videos. like just a bunch of data right. on random video because Akamai hosts a lot of this right. stuff. Yeah. If you're not familiar with Akamai, they do a lot of hosting. They do CDNs for businesses. I mean, they're yeah. a massive company. So they, yeah. Right. So, I, well, I just thought it was interesting. It's interesting info to keep in mind in terms of, you know, when you have videos on your landing pages mm-hmm. that you're trying to use for conversion and sales. I know a lot of companies, you know, want to put their stuff on YouTube because it's also a little bit of free um, advertisement sure. in terms of people can find it on YouTube. Mm-hmm. But a lot of companies don't agree with that and they want to keep it on their own hosted right. servers. And so these, these are things to keep in mind in terms yeah. of how fast the video needs to play and performance. Yeah, I think also kind of what's the takeaway is I think that, you know, even if the two second mark is is accurate, which I have my doubts on, I think a, another takeaway is, you know, to show progress to people is important. So when you're looking at how you're displaying videos, do you have a loading aspect of that? Is there some dynamic nature that you can maybe, uh, I don't know, put kind of a carrot on a stick to someone to kind of show them that something is happening in the background and kind of hang on? Or how do we potentially interact with customers while the video is loading in some different ways to kind of keep their attention going? Um, might be some things for us to to test and just keep in mind when we're looking at our process. And even, you know, if we're running a website and we're deciding what kind of video player, if we're not going with YouTube or Vimeo, um, what kind of player are we going to use to embed our videos? What would be the best experience to kind of show people um, that something is happening, but also have the best performance on load and things like that. Right. And one mm-hmm. more quick thing before we go into the next topic, I just want to keep in mind, you know, when companies try to make their own players or use their own players on their website, uh, you know, tech is kind of a fickle thing in mm-hmm. terms of mm-hmm. having videos be able to play on phones and on desktops. <clears throat> and right. so just, those are some things to keep in mind. You know, we ran into those issues with having the podcast player oh, yeah. work on the website across a lot of platforms. <laughs> We're still having some, issues. Some good times, so. good times. Um, <laughs> I think, but I think, again, like the strong takeaway there is, you know, I think 
consider where your traffic is coming from. I mean, if people are kind of getting nurtured down a process, their abandonment rate is probably a little bit um, less, and they're probably willing to put up with a little bit more than if people are kind of com- coming from like content generation sites where, you know, it might be something like Reddit or, or things like that. So at the end of the day, we need to make sure that our performance, if we're going to use video, is on point. Um, and that we're also showing progress and keeping people engaged through that process. Um, and like you said, continually testing it versus different platforms to make sure that it's actually working out there. So moving right along, um, I found this interesting article where uh, marketing uh, profs actually did a study on people that digest B2B content when they're looking for a provider. So um, really what this study was looking at is when people are kind of shopping around with a business um, to provide a service or, you know, really in the B2B space, um, what is the content that is shown to them that impacts their buying decision? So not necessarily that they're looking to share it um, or anything like that, but this is solely focused on how do I get people ready to sign with me? How do I get them dollars with my content? That's what it's all about. It is. Um, so there were a couple interesting takeaways that I had from from this study that I thought were worth mentioning because some of them were a little bit striking for me. But to preface this study, it was over 400 um, content seekers that were actually sampled in this study. Um and again, this was marketing profs. Give them a shout out. They actually have some pretty good content on their site. I will say, hella busy website. They need to probably work on the usability of their site. It's just got a lot of things shouting at you. But anyways, let's let's dive into this survey. Um, so the first topic they really talked about was kind of trusted sources of content, which I thought was important to look at because, you know, especially in the B2B space, I don't know if many of you have ever really delved into that world, but there's a lot of crap. I mean, there's a lot of crap on the web just in general, but when you get into looking at white papers and downloads that businesses provide, I mean, there is a lot of just terrible stuff out there. And looking at what people trust to me is important because as a business, my time is probably pretty limited and budgets are limited, resources are limited. So if I'm looking to generate content that it's going to give me the most lead and the most impact, this is what's important to me. So what people answered was overwhelmingly people and this I think this question is phrased a bit oddly, which we'll probably get into as well, but people are overwhelmingly trusted and valued reports and white papers that were from industry groups or professional associations. That made up a bulk of um the trusted and valued um content. There was also some areas where people cared about customer case studies, which I think is important and maybe goes back to the social proof um, concept that we were talking about earlier on is, you know, how do I take this from the abstract of the studies where, you know, maybe your business optimized a process by 48% and you kind of tell me all this technical jargon, whereas a customer 
case study kind of puts that more in real world terms. Yeah. What did that deliver for a business? I'm actually a little surprised that number is sort of as low as it is on the sure. on the tier mm-hmm. there. I mean, that may just be because certain industries case studies aren't really relevant. Right. That may be the influencing factor. Or maybe they just struggle to get businesses that want to, you know, divulge that information. It's just True. it's That's odd. Point. Yeah, it's odd to me, you know, working in the internet for as long as I have, how many companies like just do not like to, to tell anything about themselves yeah. online? You know, this this threat of competition, um, and they just don't like people knowing that. You know, maybe people just really struggle for that information. Um, but what's interesting is at the very bottom was product reviews. And why I thought that was kind of interesting, and you, and you brought this up when you were talking about it, is I think the question is not phrased very well. So what type of content do you value and trust? And I feel like value and trust sometimes are divorced from one another. Right. Like when I'm looking to buy something, sometimes product reviews is something that I value a lot when I'm going to shop for something or if I'm kind of unsure about a product. It doesn't necessarily mean I'm trusting of it, but it's something that I value in the process. Um, So I think the wording here is a little bit odd, but I think the takeaway here is if you're generating content, if it's possible to try to get some other people to talk about your product that are of recognized you know, like recognizable stature or, you know, carry kind of a third party uh, weight to them because that is what people value and trusted quite a bit. So whether that is, you know, putting excerpts into your content about what trade organizations talk about your products, you know, are you like a gold seal partner or do you carry some sort of, um, you know, industry leading uh, example, I think that that can really carry your content. And maybe you even link to their content as well to kind of instill that trust even more. Like, don't take our word for it. Here's their white paper that includes us. And maybe you just link them to that direct, you know, page of the report or whatever. And you do that in an intelligent way that keeps them on the process. So when you're looking to craft your content, people value and trust what what it really boils down to is what other people that is, are of professional stature kind of say about you. It's not just about bragging about yourself or even what your customers have to say. You know, what what are the people that are the big guns in whatever industry saying about you? So keep that in mind. Um, now, what is the last thing I'm going to talk about? Well, I think dislike is also good, but what people value the most within the content. So now we're switching gears into kind of the global what type of um, content do you value and trust, but what are the content characteristics? Right. So how we're, how we're crafting this content, what people value the most, um, almost tied is breadth and depth of information and ease of access and understanding and readability. Um, I think sometimes those two kind of compete with one another, you know, sometimes it's hard to really get in-depth information without, hurting readability or kind of ease of use. I think that's like an art almost. Yeah, it's kind of confusing to me because I, at least in the industry that we're in, which Mm -hmm. is the only one I can sort of speak to, I don't care how long your stupid e-book slash report slash benchmark guide or whatever you want to call it is. To me, that is completely pointless. I I just want the facts. Give it to me straight. What Mm -hmm. ease of access to me is critically important Right. I don't need 200 pages of fluff that mm-hmm. I can't understand that's technically written and doesn't apply mm-hmm. um, in the real world. I, I just want it straight. 
and I would rather have five pages. Right. I think though that we might be unique cases. You know, I mean, like let's take for example, and I'm not knocking them for their model, but when I look at like marketing Sherpa or some other publishing companies in our space, I mean, they put out these massive benchmark guides that honestly probably could be distilled into a, a lot more you know, simplified of a process or even a report. But I think that sometimes people, even though they might not read a lot of info, you know, read the whole benchmark guide, having five, 500 or 600 pages, you know, to them makes you feel like an expert, even though if I'm not right. going to read it, I think the key there is how do you find relevant copy quickly? Um, but also I think you, you're going to get people that are going to kind of scan through that content. So if you're going to go on the, breadth and depth um, aspect, still make sure that you're delivering quality and you're not just fluffing up your articles because that's a big turnoff, especially for me. If I feel like you're just BSing for pages for just pages sake. Well, I think also what may be throwing these stats too is, uh, you know, I think people answering this question probably say breadth and depth of information because they think that that is what they should value. Mm-hmm. Instead of what they actually value in terms of, you know, ease of access, which is maybe what, you know, it's like saying, what kind of books do you like to read? You know, mm-hmm. no one wants to say, oh, I like Twilight. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Because that's easy to read and accessible. Right. They'll say, oh, I love the, I love Shakespearean, <laughs> right. you know, literature. And like, because well, I think, think what's that's also what different, want. we got to keep in mind, though, is these are people shopping for a service. So it's not necessarily just people that are looking for content to digest, but it's. I, and in a sense, I'm looking for someone that can do something that I can't. Right. Um, so I think that, you know, maybe that slightly changes things. But to kind of keep moving forward, what was really striking to me is the last place top, uh, characteristic that you value most in B2B content is originality, thinking, and ideas. So people don't really care about the original. I mean, some people do, obviously. But it was not front and center of mind. I mean, it's more about show me your expertise and um, like make it easy for me to digest. But they don't really care too much about the originality. So from for me as a takeaway, you know, as I'm thinking of how I craft my marketing budgets and how I allocate resources, it seems like in this B2B space when I'm crafting content and I'm looking to acquire people. It's almost more, can I develop good, um, very in-depth kind of information and content, but getting in front of people first? Because originality is not the most valued thing for the people that were surveyed here. That Maybe that's different for different industries, for sure. But it seems to me, you know, develop your content, but concentrate a lot on getting in front of people. So from like a budgeting and planning standpoint, to me, that kind of tells, you know, and instructs us that maybe we need to spend a lot more on PPC or lead gen. We worry about our content, but it's not so much focusing on how we can make ours so much more unique. It's really about how do we show our expertise, but getting in front of people really quickly and trying to capture that lead. Um, so that was kind of interesting to me that people didn't necessarily value originality too, too much. And maybe that's also people perceive that as like a risk. Yeah. You know, it's like I'm accustomed to this. Most other people are doing it this. So when people kind of stir the pot, they're like, 
that's a cool idea, but I'm not going to risk my job and my reputation on that. Yeah, I could certainly see that in several industries. It being a detriment, people who are coming up with, with new sort of untested, maybe unproven ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people just probably want to go with the industry standards and right. certain kinds of things. Yeah. Um, sort of the last topic for tonight, uh, I know you know, we're sort of running low on time, I don't, and I don't want to spend too much time on this, uh, mm-hmm. but you know, I was running a test with a partner recently where they had two... Basically, we had an AdWords campaign where we had split out, okay, so here's all the international traffic goes through this campaign, U.S. traffic goes through this one. So we wanted to test landing pages, different kinds of layouts, same sort of content, but different Mm -hmm. kinds of layouts. So we tested three different layouts for the U.S. traffic, the same sort of three layouts for the international traffic. So like, let's see which performs best for which um, different kind of traffic. Mm -hmm. We found drastically different results. Um, The sort of specifics don't really matter, I don't think are really relevant. Just just the overall idea that a, and we're talking about like a 50% increase of one's difference. Difference for different templates. Right. So, you know, I think that it sort of points out something that maybe I don't, I don't see a lot of people doing this. Mm -hmm. I see maybe people changing some of their messaging, uh, you know, like in ads and things like that for international users versus US users. But Mm -hmm. I don't see a lot of landing page redesign or serious overhauls of different strategies uh, for websites and landing pages and processes mm-hmm. for different kinds of demographics. And I think, you know, you can sort of apply this to the United States as well. A lot of people think, you know, U.S. versus international. Obviously, there are cultural differences, you know, even between Europe, you know, sure. the U.K. and France, there are massive cultural differences. Mm-hmm. But you can see that in the United States, we're such a massive country. There are mass, there are big cultural differences between you know here in Florida, and say we have New all York, the crazy people, <laughs> right? <laughs> the crazy old people, uh-huh. and say you know New York, or say the middle of nowhere in Kansas, right? Or say Seattle. Mm-hmm. There are massive cultural differences between all these places. But you know, we as marketers tend to lump everyone into as U.S. U.S. traffic is all the same, right? Which, in some respects, we do act the same. We like to pay for everything on credit cards sure. and things like that. But there are massive cultural differences, and I think different forms of messaging mm-hmm. could really be effective, especially when you think of big city versus rural. Right. And sort of back, you know, backpedaling a little bit here, I know that there are some major differences between U.S. and international in terms – one of the major things I've noticed is payment preferences. Mm-hmm. People in Europe don't like to pay with a credit card. Mm-hmm which is how everyone in the United States pays for sure. when they buy for something online. So right. if you only present the credit card option to international mm-hmm. users, they don't want to buy. They don't right. want to use that method. Um, they like paying with uh, a check or mm-hmm. an online draft from their account. Right. So you want to present that as the first sure. method of payment, and maybe credit card is you know, not even on the page. Mm-hmm. So, so are the, if, you can, if you remember off the top of your head, was there any... Any kind of takeaways from the layout that you kind of saw, like in your tests, like where they right. wanted, you know, much more content towards the top, and like, you know, I, I so, don't remember, I don't know the tests. Right. Were. So, uh, you know, I'm not so sure the details are relevant. I do okay. know what the differences were, and so uh, it was a very simple landing page. We were just trying to look through for click throughs off. So it's basically a jump landing page. Mm-hmm. Um, the primary difference that I remember is that the international users liked uh, much more graphic heavy. Mm. Um, landing page. So they didn't okay. want the classic bullet styles with little icons explaining things. They wanted right. just a big graphic that mm-hmm. sort of conveyed whatever the idea was. Much more a, a visual shopper. And a, and a title for a thing. So mm-hmm. a much simpler page, at least in terms of content being on it. There was just images primarily. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and that that performed a lot better versus the U.S. traffic liked the a little bit more content, hmm. um, much more subdued graphics and a little right. bit more content that uh, sort of explained some of the features in a yeah. little bit more depth. Yeah, and I think that sometimes it's those types of tests that are interesting, but I think some people are like scared, like, oh, so how to like implement that? That seems right. like really difficult. But, you know, we're at a point now with, easily downloadable and integrated libraries that you can do this geo um, location targeting and this stuff at at this day and age is really easy to kind of work into your site you might have to contract with an i you know like a coding professional but you know we're at the point now with the just where we're at with web development that these types of changes and these types of smart websites are much easier to achieve um, so i think don't feel discouraged when you hear some of these test results and think that's really cool. I could never do that. Right. Really like 95, 96% of people really could. Um, it's just finding that good professional. Um, and I think that you would be surprised how easy those kind of results and those implementations can be actually. Yeah. You know, some of them can be difficult, but there are ways you could easily do, um, sort of half-assed versions of this, I guess, mm -hmm. is a way to put it. So you could easily set up a separate AdWords campaign or split out the traffic to go to a different landing mm -hmm. page for, say, some major cities in the United States. I think this would maybe be the easiest way to go about this. So just pick major cities, LA, Boston, New York, um, major cities, send that traffic to a different grouping of landing page tests mm -hmm. and send everything else, exclude those cities from everything else into a sure. different grouping of landing page mm -hmm. tests. I think you're going to see a significant difference between the two and there's obviously enough people in those large cities for that difference to make a bottom line difference. Right. And that's a worthwhile test to right. run. Right, your sample's big enough. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. Uh, that was an interesting test. And again, I think that people need to delve more into like locations, but also, you know, what different demographics might be coming to your site, how that plays into it. If it's a younger, or older demographics, what's going to be their preference as a user site? Um, even with like e-commerce sites, depending on your catalog, you might have different people coming in shopping for different products and maybe how your product pages need to evolve for those demographics and what their shopping purchase uh, like patterns and preferences yeah. are, uh, are things that people need to be a little bit more mindful of. So anyways, we're out of time for this week. This has been episode number 13. Give us a call 904-270-9603. Or you can even text us if you hate talking on the phone um, and tell us what topics you really struggle with, you know, or even give us some feedbacks on the topic tonight. You know, when you're looking for a B2B company and you're shopping around, what kind of content do you like? Do you like extensive documentation or do you just want simple, give me what you did for a customer, that's what I care about, um, or give me something unique? Um, you know, what kind of tests have you run with uh, global traffic and what kind of scenes uh, or differences have you seen in your data. Um, but anyways, this has been episode number 13. We're excited what the future holds for the new site. So keep us on your Twitter feed, Facebook. We're on really all the social yeah. media sites. So stay connected with us. Keep an eye out for the new site launch with a bunch of new content coming. Um, send us over a tweet as well. If you'd like us to take a look at your site, we're going to be generating some video content on optimizing websites and really helping put some action behind some of these principles that we talk about on the podcast and show you visually how we can make the internet a better place. So until next time, this has been Rob and Corey. We are the Bearded Marketers. We'll see you guys next week. <laughs>